You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Benjamin Friedman, who is a professor of economics at Harvard University, who has written extensively in economics and written a couple of books I'm going to discuss today. <laughs> Most recently, this one called Religion and the Rise of Capitalism, and also this one, The Moral Consequences of Economic Growth. Welcome, Ben. Thank you very much, Greg. I'm happy to be with you. Now, this latest book, I found it, first of all, incredible that someone who's a chair of the economics department could write such an incredible book of intellectual history. But I, I think the main thrust of this book is that our conventional view of how economics and perhaps other social sciences came to exist is a little simplistic, right? I think we tend to see economics as an outgrowth of the Enlightenment. We see the Enlightenment as something which was in conflict with and in opposition to religion. And yet you highlight how it was the religious ideas of the time that gave birth to this particular view of the world that we call economics and that it's positive aspects like our understanding of, of human nature and the, the normative aspects that are implied sort of, you know, how we should organize society. These have direct precedence in the kind of milieu that existed across Europe in general, but specifically in the sort of Scottish and later American environments in which kind of economics took root. So I guess maybe the first question is, why do we have this simplistic view, this sort of social science versus religion, when all you have to do is read the scientists of the time and see that they were profoundly religious people? Uh, and even some of the textbooks that you talk about in the 19th century, the dominant textbooks in economics, I mean, they are filled with religious references, religious explanations, and, and religious imagery. I think you're right, but the important thing to point out is that what you said is not true of Adam Smith and David Hume, to whom I would point as the two most central figures in this uh, story. What you said, for example, is very true of Newton. Newton was very clear, uh, not in the book, but in his correspondence, that he intended his great work, the Principia Mathematica, to be used as he put it, to educate people about the divine, because by gaining a greater understanding of how the physical world worked, they were coming to understand the world that God had made. And Newton was very explicit about this, but it's not true of Smith and Hume. And you see the puzzlement from this perspective, and it's a hurdle that I had to get over in constructing the book. Neither Smith nor Hume was outwardly in any way uh, a religiously committed individual. Just to take them in turn, Hume was an outspoken opponent of any form of organized religion. Uh, his great friend, William Robertson, who was the head of the Church of Scotland, referred to him as a virtuous heathen. That was not taken to be a compliment in those days. Hume used to refer to 
Church of England bishops as retainers to superstition. That was his phrase. So nobody would have thought of Hume in the light in which you just described many of these scientists. And Smith was much more private about his personal religious commitments. I personally think that he was the kind of 18th century deist that we in America would associate with, for example, Benjamin Franklin or Thomas Jefferson. Uh, But there's really nothing uh, in his writings to indicate a sense of religious commitment. We do know that as a condition for taking up his professorship at the University of Glasgow, he had to show up at the town consistory and swear to the Westminster Confession, but that could have meant all sorts of things. We also know that in the same uh, appearance, he requested an exemption from the requirement to start each lecture with a prayer. Uh, So he has to be exempted from that. Incidentally, the consistory said no. He had to start each lecture with a prayer, and according to the record, they were pretty short ones. And remember, these people were international celebrities in their own time, and so we know a lot about them biographically. And Smith and Hume just don't fit with the description that you gave which is right for Newton and right for Priestley and right for many of these other people. And because Smith and Hume, Smith especially, are rightly regarded, as I argue in the book, as the central figures in the creation of modern economics, I think this gives rise to taking over this view, which you articulated very well. Economics is a product of the Enlightenment, fine, was true for Smith and Hume in the Scottish Enlightenment, and there were figures in Paris who were part of the French Enlightenment, and part of this, there were others in the German Enlightenment. So, uh, yes, economics is a part of the Enlightenment, and we do normally think of the Enlightenment as a movement away from conceptions of a God-centered universe toward what we, in our modern vocabulary, would call secular humanism— And so I don't think people who have the conventional view are being stupid or obtuse or ignorant, but I do think it's wrong. (laughs) And that's what the book was about, was showing that the conventional view, which excludes any role for religious thinking in the origins of modern Western economics, is seriously incomplete. Well, when you're doing intellectual history, I mean, it's, it's kind of difficult to establish causation, right? I mean, it's hard to say this person said this and therefore, you know, this person would never have been able to say this if this hadn't been preceded by this other stuff. So it's, it's hard to kind of do intellectual history in this linear way. But I think what you're trying to do is, is describe the soil in which these shoots took root, right? I mean, you quote people like Samuelson and Schumpeter, both of whom argued that if you want to understand a theory, you have to kind of understand the pre-theory, right? You have to understand the environment in which it arose. And so, I mean, how can we establish causation, you know, when we do this kind of history? Well, you said two things, both of which are right, and let me comment on them uh, separately. First, I think it's very difficult to establish causation. Sometimes you can. For example, there is this uh, statement by Darwin in his autobiography in which he says that the idea for the natural selection model came to him 
while reading Malthus. Well, there it is, smoking gun. Hooray for people who work on Darwin. I haven't found anything like that for Smith, so forget it. And at one level, that's why my book is 500 pages instead of 15. If it were straightforward and linearly causal, as you put it, this would have been a short journal article instead of a pretty heavy book. But what I try to do is flesh out the circumstances surrounding Smith and Hume and their contemporaries, in which religious thought was a very important part of what you call the soil, and I'd be happy to talk about that further. But for now, let me just say that the the central concept that I use is one that I took from Einstein. Some years after he got the Nobel Prize, Einstein was asked to comment on the way in which scientists think, and he broadened the question. He said, let's not just talk about scientists, let's talk about painters, philosophers, literary people. And his view was that the world in which we live is so complex that we can never make real progress by trying to analyze the world directly. It's just too hard. And therefore, what Einstein wrote was that everybody who tries to analyze the world forms for himself or herself what Einstein called, well, in the original German, it's built der Welt, which you could translate as a picture of the world, an image of the world. In Einstein's works as translated into English, it's usually called a worldview. So you carry around your worldview. I carry around my worldview. Adam Smith had a worldview. David Hume had a worldview. And Einstein was very articulate on the idea that, again, because the world itself is so complex, what people actually end up analyzing is not the world, but their worldview. So my argument was that consciously or not, what formed an important part of Smith and Hume's worldview was this new set of ideas from the religious realm, which came to Scotland exactly when they were coming into young adulthood and therefore forming their thought patterns, forming their, well, their worldview. You know, we don't pay too much attention to ideas that aren't contested. So if you ask me, Ben, are you aware that our uh, atmosphere is mostly nitrogen? I'm likely to say, yeah, Greg, I, I understand that. I know that. And then you say, how does that affect your worldview? And my answer is, well, I haven't thought about that in a long time. I don't know. doesn't affect my worldview at all. But if I'm constantly exposed to things that people are arguing about and debating, then it's going to affect my worldview. And as I explain in some detail in the book, this new set of thinking in the English-speaking Protestant world in which Smith and Hume lived Uh, was a kind of rolling phenomenon. It came to England first in the latter half of the 17th century, and then it came to Scotland in the early to mid-decades of the 18th century, to repeat exactly when Smith was coming to young adulthood. And then it came to the United States in the latter part of the 18th century. And uh, I know you're uh, 
political science person. I'm an economist, but uh, political science people have made a great deal of the fact that this came to the United States exactly when our republic was formed. Well, that's an interesting story. It doesn't happen to be my story, uh, but my story is about what happened when it came to Scotland right at the period when Smith was becoming a young adult. Well, you know, you described this milieu of Scotland at the time, and I don't think if you're going to place bets on where, you know, a, a good new school of philosophy was going to come from, you would have picked Scotland. I mean, it was, had just gone through a pretty devastating famine, right? It had just sort of abolished a lot of its political institutions, but the milieu seems pretty exciting. I mean, these people seem to be more social than my colleagues here at, at Berkeley when it comes to, you know, dinner parties and the like. So, you know, what was it about Scotland that was, was it purely accidental that, that Scotland became this hub of fervent, innovative, social scientific thought? What I would point to uh, is two factors. First, although it's true that Scotland had a, a low standard of living, both in general and uh, fairly recently uh, at the time, uh, Scotland also had a pretty educated intelligentsia. Remember, England had precisely two universities uh, at the time, Oxford and Cambridge. Uh, Scotland had Edinburgh, Glasgow, Stirling, St. Andrews. Uh, I think Aberdeen was there already. So, uh, the Scots had more universities. The Scots were better educated, more literate, more literary than the English. So they had a pretty good uh, intelligentsia. Importantly for my story, in a way that I'd be glad to elaborate, the Scots were well-educated in Newtonian ideas of system and mechanism in ways that the English uh, were not. By the time Smith was an undergraduate, say the 1730s, Newton's great book was part of the standard curriculum at every one of the Scottish uh, universities. It also was at Cambridge, but not at Oxford, which may be why Oxford lagged behind in scientific endeavor for so long. So the, the Scots had this training in... Not, not all Scots. I'm not talking about the vast majority of the population, but then when you ask about the origins of the Enlightenment, you're not asking about the vast majority of the population either. We're talking about the literary uh, intelligentsia, including in particular the people who are sufficiently literary to write down what they thought. And I think these people were very well-educated including in these Newtonian concepts of system and mechanism. And that proved very important for the Smith uh, enterprise because, as I argue at some length in the book, uh, he was not the first person to intuit that self-interest could be uh, helpful economically, but he was the first person to have a systematic explanation for why it was so. That's what became the basis of econ modern economics. And he was the first person to have a mechanism by which this worked, namely market competition. So I think the inspiration from Newton cannot be overlooked here. Well, let's look at some of these other strands that ultimately met in Adam Smith. There's this whole strand that came out of France and which ultimately, I guess, 
found its spokesperson with Mandeville. In the story, you have him sort of as the capstone of this strand of thinking where vice and virtue dissolve into one another, which lies at the root of this idea of the invisible hand. Yes, you're right. Mandeville, who is a Dutchman who, for political reasons, we think, emigrated to uh, England and lived in London where he practiced medicine. He was a medical doctor. Uh, Mandeville, in his great work called The Fable of the Bees, absolutely had it right. He understood that people acting on their own self-interest would or could thereby make other people better off. Uh, The book is called The Fable of the Bees, and the subtitle is Private Vice, Public Benefits. And by vice, he means acting on your own self-interest. He doesn't mean beating your wife. He doesn't mean gambling. Uh, He doesn't mean all sorts of other nefarious stuff. He simply means by vice, acting on your own self-interest in the economic realm. And it's this lovely parable in which uh, the bees all act on their own self-interest, and therefore the hive is the hive is the metaphorical society uh, is a pretty thriving, prosperous place. And one day the poor bees get the idea that they should be virtuous instead of vicious. And to repeat, in this context, what being virtuous means is not acting on their self-interest in the economic uh, sphere. And as a result, the hive collapses. Nobody has a job. There's no, nothing to eat, nothing to wear. Uh, the economy collapses and all the bees fly away in the, in the end. So that, that's Manville. So at one level, yes, Mandeville, and we're talking about 1705, incidentally, so that's pretty early. Smith's Wealth of Nations was not until 1776. But Mandeville absolutely had this idea that we call the first fundamental welfare theorem in modern economics, that people, without intending to make anybody else better off, merely by acting under their own self-interest, can, and under the right circumstances, will end up making not just themselves, but others better off. Now, Mandeville had it. So why is it that people like me don't think of Bernard Mandeville as the founder of modern economics? Because I don't. I think of it as Smith. And the answer is that Mandeville just had no explanation for why this result came about. It's like being able to state a theorem without proving it. And what what became the heart of modern economics was the systematic explanation that Smith provided, complete with the mechanism, again, market competition. And you're right also, you mentioned Pierre Nicole, who was French and lived before uh, Mandeville. Nicole had a form of the proposition also, but he too had no systematic explanation for it whatsoever. And so I think uh, that's why the Newtonian influence is very important. Now, why was that such a uh, revolutionary idea? You alluded to folks like Hogarth and others who thought that greed and self-interest was really at the heart of all the problems that people faced in the 18th century. So did this fly directly in the face of the general view of self-interest? 
Well, it certainly did. And look, you'd have to be living in a closet not to understand that there are people today, lots of them, who think of economic self-interest as not good for the society uh, as a whole. We have them at my university, and I'm sure you have them at your university. And, you know, read the front page of the newspaper any day and look at uh, who's protesting against what. So this is not a new idea, but especially before the era of modern economic growth, this had been the unquestioned idea for at least 2,000 years. You know, you go back to the Hebrew Bible, you go back to uh, the early precepts of the Roman Catholic Church, there's all this stuff about envy, there's all this stuff about covetousness. Nobody had reason to think that acting on your self-interest economically was going to make other people better off. There are hints of it somewhere. I mean, of course, they understood that a prosperous farmer was going to have employees, so it's not completely missing. But in part, before the era of modern economic growth, which means before the Industrial Revolution and then especially the 18th and 19th centuries, it was not a silly thing to think that economics is what we call a zero-sum activity, namely that if I do something that makes me better off, I'm taking away from some other people. And this is this remains today even a very prevalent uh, view, and es- especially before societies started to grow. If you go back before the 18th century, the only ways of uh, making your society richer were conquering other people and plundering their riches and uh, enslaving their populations, it wasn't attractive. So the whole idea that you could make everybody in the society uh, better off, again, think about our standard of living now compared to 300 years ago. If you were living in 1650, you would not have had the view that your standard of living was better than it was in 1340. It wasn't. But today, compare our standard of living with 300 years ago, for goodness sake. Well, there's that view that individual interest is in conflict with the general interest. But there was also this view that prosperity was ultimately bad for moral character, right? And I think this is, in some ways, the topic of your first book, this idea that throughout history, people have debated whether prosperity is good or bad for the soul or for the character of the nation. And I think it was Hume really made the point that prosperity is what enables, right, the virtues rather than gets in the way. So there's nothing virtuous about poverty. This was a relatively new concept, right? Well, I think, yes, I think that's right. And this was a famous essay that Hume wrote in 1742. And he asks, you know, is it possible to imagine a society with such and such uh, positive virtues where nobody knows how to use a plow, for example, or where nobody knows how to spin yarn and weave textiles? And his answer is no. It's this material advance in people's well-being that leads to uh, advance in the moral character of the society. And by moral character of the society, he would have meant not, again, whether people are beating their spouses or taking drugs or something, but he would have meant people's ability to govern themselves and to get along in a, 
peaceful, uh, well-regulated uh, society. And his argument from then became a staple of Enlightenment thinking. It was a three-stage process. There was advance in knowledge, what he called scientific advance. Again, learning how to use the plow, learning how to plant this, plant that, learning how to weave, spin the yarn, weave the textiles. So there's advance in knowledge leading to advance in economic material well-being. And then the next step is that that advance in material well-being leads to an advance in moral character, meaning peaceability, sociability, governance, uh, well-regulated society, and the like. And that became an absolute mainstay of Enlightenment thinking. And you're correct that that, that was the subject of my previous book on what I call the moral consequences of economic growth. Exactly so. And that comes from other Enlightenment figures. So I suppose without really intending to, I've written two books about the Enlightenment, even though I never set out to do that. Well, I think if you ask most people what the relationship is between religion and capitalism, they'll point to Max Weber. And, you know, I think most people would understand him to be saying that it was Protestantism which enabled the emergence of capitalism and economic thinking. But I think you dig a little deeper and point out that even within the kind of Protestantism that we saw in England, there's this huge divide between what we might think of as the stricter Calvinist view, which involves predestination, and uh, this Arminianism. And you point to Arminianism as really the origin of this way of thinking. Did Max Weber failed to understand the, the complexity of these different strands within Protestant thinking in the 18th century? First place, let's get right what Weber said, and then I'll describe the relationship of my thinking to Weber's. What Weber emphasized was the Calvinist belief in predestination, which for your listeners who are not up on such matters, means the belief that whether any individual is saved or alternatively is condemned to an eternity of punishment uh, after death is a matter that's determined not by anything the individual does or thinks or decides in his or her life, but rather is a matter determined not only before the, the individual was born, but before the world as a whole was created. Yeah, I, I could never understand. Maybe it's because of my Catholic upbringing with an emphasis on works, but I could never understand how that would motivate people to be virtuous. Right. Here's the Well, lots of people thought it didn't, uh, but here's the Weber story, and you can uh, accept it or not. Weber again, emphasize that people of this persuasion believed that nothing they could do would influence causally their salvation. But according to Weber, because this was pretty important stuff, are you going to spend eternity in the company of the divine, or are you going to be spend eternity being tortured in a lake of fire, and I'm sure you're familiar with all of the Puritan images that go along that. This was very important. And so people 
went about in a state of what Weber called existential anxiety over their ultimate spiritual fate. Now, although they knew that nothing they did could be causal, they interpreted their outward behavior as a kind of outward sign that they were either saved or not. So it's magical thinking, right? If, if I look like I'm saved, that must mean I'm saved, right? Yes, yes, that's right. It's like uh, some student wants to know whether he did well in your class. And the exam is over, and there's nothing he can do at this point to influence it. But if you walk by him in the corridor at your department and smile at him, well, that's a sign that maybe things are okay. It's that it's it's an external sign, not something causal. So people tried to mold their behavior in ways that would give them the reassurance of these external signs. Things like uh, thrift, if you saved your money instead of spending it. Uh, sober behavior, think about our image of the Puritans. Uh, economic enterprise, if you started a business and it succeeded, this suggested that uh, the divine was on your side, you were part of the elect, and so forth. Mind, I'm not trying to sell this to you or to any of your listeners. We are talking about a belief structure in which I do not personally participate. So the last thing I want to do is hold myself out as a Calvinist preacher but this is what Weber correctly thought lots of people in the 17th century uh, believed. And in Weber's great book called The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism, uh, he goes on about all of these Puritans wandering around Massachusetts and early New England, laboring under the burden of this existential anxiety and therefore being driven to kinds of behavior that were conducive to capitalist success. Now, what do I think, not about whether Calvin's right or wrong, who cares what Ben Friedman thinks about what whether Calvin's right or wrong, but what do I think about the consequences of the move away from this belief in the mid-18th century in Scotland and earlier in England, later in America? I think the movement toward the idea that anybody is potentially eligible for salvation and that each individual's salvation does depend on acts and decisions that that individual makes, I think opens up a whole new, uh, not only more positive view of the human character in ways I go into, but also a much more expansive view of the possibilities for human agency. And I think it's that possibility for human agency that Smith built on in the book, because if you are not totally depraved, as Calvin would have said, but if you are, as John Locke would have said, Locke was not a Calvinist, uh, if you are born with the candle of the Lord, that's Locke's famous metaphor, uh, so that you have it within you to see what's good to do, and you can do good indeed to such an extent that you can uh, arrange to be saved, then 
it, you know, by analogy, you might be able to do good in the world also by following your own uh, instincts, your candle of the Lord. Now, does this make Weber wrong? I don't think so. And there are two reasons. One, as I mentioned a moment ago, Weber was talking about the 17th century, uh, in particular 17th century New England, where uh, people believed in all this. I'm talking about the 18th century and not just focusing on a period when belief in predestination went out, but the fact that it went out, that's the centerpiece of my story. That's, I think, the key religious influence. So Weber is about the 17th century. I'm about the 18th century and beyond. And then second, Weber was writing about the behavior. He was a sociologist. He's writing about behavior and behavior of ordinary people, lots of them. And I'm writing, I'm doing, as you pointed out, intellectual history. I'm writing about not the behavior, but the thinking, the ideas and the ideas we talked about before, the ideas of the educated elite. So I don't think accepting my story in this book means somebody has to reject Weber's story in the Protestant ethic book. I see them as perfectly compatible, even though I sometimes refer to my book as Weber upside down, because he's all about the effect of belief in Calvinism, and I'm all about what happened as a result of the belief in Calvinism going away. Now, th these seem to be two different strands that combine here. One is that one can achieve salvation through acts and works. And then the other is that those acts and works are things which people can discover on their own, more or less, and which align with the pursuit of wealth and happiness, right? Because you could have you know, acts and works which are not in alignment, right, with the pursuit of wealth and happiness, right? Yes, absolutely. So uh, you could have uh, lots of Mother Teresa behavior, and nobody wants to deny that Mother Teresa made other people better off through her actions, and we all admired her uh, for that. But I don't think it's an either-or. I think the fact that people can and sometimes do make other people better off through actions which are not self-interested behavior doesn't preclude the fact that people also can make others better off under the right conditions by acting in a way that's self-interested. And here's where Smith, the philosopher, comes in. Remember, Smith never thought of himself as an economist. The word didn't exist then. He, he was a professor of moral philosophy there's this wonderful line in Smith in which he says that the desire to improve our condition, that's his phrase, the desire to improve our condition comes with us from the womb and stays with us until the grave, and in between there's scarcely ever a moment when it's not acting on us. So he takes this self-interested behavior just as a part of human nature. He doesn't say where it comes from. It's just his observation as a philosopher that that's how we behave. And of course, improving our condition could mean all sorts of things, but he immediately goes on to make clear that it's our economic condition that he has in mind. So he thinks that while, of course, there are Mother Teresas among us, and uh, 
praise to everybody that they exist, and that's wonderful, and they should be applauded and admired and supported. He just doesn't think as a practical matter, counting on society to consist of Mother Teresa's is going to get you anywhere. But now part of this is an implicit belief that the invisible hand is kind of part of a divine plan, right? That there's this complex mechanism at work. I mean, you quoted a later textbook author from the 19th century about comparative advantage. And he said, well, why is it that we have different countries with different aptitudes? And, and he said, well, that's the way, you know, it's all part of God's plan. And it sounded very Panglossian. Yes, yes, that's right. And But I tried to be very careful about that. In America in the 19th century, unlike Smith, who was not outwardly a religious character, the people who wrote the economic textbooks uh, and taught the economics courses in America in the 19th century, especially the early 19th century, were very much religiously committed individuals. The best-selling textbook was written by Francis Whelan, the president of Brown University, uh, as you would expect because it was Brown. He was a Baptist, and he was a Baptist clergyman. Uh, the first person to teach an economics course in the United States was a man named John McVicker. Uh, he was at Columbia, and as you would expect because it was Columbia, he was an Episcopalian, but he was more than just an Episcopalian. He was a priest. So, uh, in effect, they were, they were saying just what you said. They were connecting the invisible hand to the body of God. Think of it that way, if we can be uh, physically metaphorical about it. But Smith never, ever wrote anything like that. He just didn't. The invisible hand was just a metaphor for the way the market worked. Now, I have to ask, when you went to the Baker Library and checked out Dan Raymond's textbook and McVicker's textbook and, and Whalen's textbook. Did you see what were they checked out last before you? I mean, it's amazing how these books can sell millions of copies and then just completely disappear right off the radar. I'm a former historian and there's a huge survivorship bias, right? You know, where everyone reads Hume, everyone reads Smith. But these textbooks with millions of copies from the 19th century, nobody ever reads. I think today's textbooks, you know, Samuelson's textbook will fade off into the sunset and textbooks that all of our undergrads are reading, they'll probably disappear from memory in a few decades. What was it like to go back and read these textbooks and put yourself in the shoes of the professors in those days? I really enjoyed it. It was, it was just a fascinating process to see what they knew, what they didn't know. I was talking before about the best-selling textbook before uh, the Civil War. That means it was before the marginalist revolution in economics. So if I say something about there's a diminishing return to uh, pursuing something, they would have had no idea what that meant. If I said something about the marginal uh, utility of buying an extra whatever, they would have had no notion of what that meant. It's really fascinating to see what they wrote. So I, uh, I'm not a historian, but I enjoy seeing the context in which they uh, put things. I mean, just to give you one example of context, Wayland was very much a free trader and uh, followed Smith in that regard. But the number two, to repeat, Wayland was the author of the best-selling textbook, uh, not millions, no, not, not millions. Uh, Whalen's 
economics textbook was the best seller because it sold 50,000 copies. That's what it had. Was it McVickers that sold? One of them sold, sold a million, I think. In, in... Well, that, that, was, that was about almost 100 years later. That was Ely's textbook. That was, oh, right. That, yeah. That was very different. Lots more people went to college in Ely's day, and a lot more, lot more people took economics in Ely's day. Uh, but the competing textbook was by one of our people here at Harvard, Francis Bowen, as you would expect for Harvard at that period. But Bowen was a Unitarian, although not uh, ordained. But Bowen's textbook was against free trade. Why? Because Bowen was very close to all of these mercantile interests in Boston. And they, at the this is now getting toward the beginning of the Industrial Revolution in New England, they wanted to protect these homegrown products. You know, they were trying to manufacture things in places like Waltham and Lowell and Lawrence, Massachusetts. That's who Bowen's friends were. And so he wrote a competing textbook, not because he needed the money, but because he wanted students to be taught that free trade was bad, but in exactly the way that you said, and it's very amusing to read, Whalen argues that free trade is good because God intended it that way, and Bowen argues that free trade is bad because God didn't want people to, in different countries to trade. So in that era, unlike Smith, uh, everybody anchored their arguments in the divine. Yeah, I'm just trying to imagine what, how that would go over at, uh, say, an AA meeting. <laughs> in your uh, in your paper, right, as your primary argument. Now, there's another strand that you talk about, which is this kind of millenarian end of the world strain. I interviewed William Bernstein recently, and he talked about the great disappointment and all these other kind of millenarian movements. And you talk about there being two separate strands to this, and the other one is one which is the I guess the premillennial movement, and and this is one which sort of offers up the possibility of heaven on earth, so to speak. No, that's the other way. Or the one that offers the possibility of heaven on earth is the post-millennials. Post-millennial, right. Yeah. I, I, I have always found the labels counterintuitive, but in brief, pre-millennialism means that the world as we know it will come to an end before the second coming and therefore before the thousand years of earthly bliss. And often, pre-millennials who take these things literally, uh, as many fundamentalists do, incidentally, uh, pre-millennials are very skeptical of the ability to improve the world. And therefore, uh, they would much rather devote their energy and resources to saving souls in anticipation of this ending of the world, rather than to do what they think of as impossible, namely make the world a better place. Now, I immediately have to qualify that because in ways that are very hard to understand, some of these premillennial groups have nonetheless been very important uh, in certain kinds of reform movements, like the temperance movement, like the abol slavery abolition movement. And I think the difference is that 
by not having slavery, according to these groups, we make it more possible for more souls to be saved. I think that's the argument, although that's no doubt that's very simplistic. Now, post-millennialism means that the world will come to an end and the second coming will occur after the thousand years of uh, earthly bliss. And therefore, it not only is possible, it is inevitable that the world will become better while humans such as us are still here. And moreover, not only is it inevitable that it will become a better world, we could become a better place, it's a religious duty to try to improve the world. Why? Because the more you improve the world, the sooner this millennium arrives, and the sooner the millennium arrives, the sooner the second coming occurs. So by working to, according to post-millennials, by working to make the world a better place, uh, we hasten the return. That, that's the theology. This is in alignment with the gospel of wealth. And, and I was unaware of Beecham's work and uh, Beecher, Beecher, right? Harriet Beecher Stowe's father, right? And, you know, we see the, the gospel of wealth everywhere today, right? On TV, you know, on the radio. And, and I think it's spreading throughout the world, right? It's spreading throughout Africa and Latin America, but I, I hadn't realized the depth of its roots in America in the 19th century and how it kind of gave rise to this battle between the gospel of wealth and the social gospel. I was wondering if you could talk a bit about that. And I didn't realize, and this was probably the most eye-opening part of the book, was the extent to which the modern economics profession grew out of the social gospel. And I, I didn't know that John Bates Clark and Richard Eli were part of this religious movement. Oh, yeah, very much so. Well, first, what were the two competing gospels in the latter half of the 19th century? A bunch of mainstream Protestant uh, clergymen, including Henry Ward Beecher, who incidentally, he was the brother of Harriet Beecher Stowe. The father was Lyman Beecher, who was before this time. I write in the book about Lyman Beecher also, but it's the younger Beecher. But these people had a view that we would associate today with laissez-faire economics, I suppose, the idea that striving to uh, improve uh, oneself economically will lead to widespread uh, wealth for the society as a whole. The sort of thing we might think of as trickle-down economics from phrase from uh, years ago. And the reason the competing gospel turned up is that by the time we got to the end of the 19th century, this was just plainly not working out. What was happening was the economy was growing very rapidly, but with the advent of the uh, mass urban workforce, lots and lots of people just were not getting ahead. So any notion that uh, in Kennedy's famous phrase, the rising tide was going to lift all the boats, that, that just became harder and harder to believe as the century drew to a close and we moved on into uh, World War One, And this was the era in politics of what became uh, known as the progressive movement, uh, people like Theodore Roosevelt, for example. 
But at the same time, in economics, the economists were concerned with why this wasn't working out, and especially what you could do about it. And this was the period when economics became a kind of ameliorative endeavor. Economics moved beyond merely trying to describe and understand the forces at work in the economy to addressing the question of what can we do about all of that. And some of these Protestant clergymen, people like Washington Gladden uh, in Ohio and um, Walter Rauschenbusch in New York, were very much economic reformers. They wanted to improve the world, but they were not about, you know, slavery was gone and they were not about temperance. They were about what we would call a social uh, uh, social safety net. They were, a, or if you wanted to use a different phrase, the modern welfare state. That's what they were trying to create. And these economists like Ely and Clark, and I just took them as two exemplars, uh, you know, could have had a lot more, but then the book would have been twice as long. Many of these economists were closely aligned at this period with the social gospel movement. Uh, there were a few exceptions who were aligned with the gospel of wealth movement, but very few. I give a couple of examples, and I don't emphasize them because what you said is correct. What evolved into the modern economics profession was the group that was aligned with the social gospel uh, movement. So, for example, Washington Gladden, the preacher from Ohio, was not only a close friend of uh, Richard Ely, the main founder of the American Economic Association, but Gladden, the preacher, was present at the meeting that Ely convened to talk about forming this association. So there were clergymen right there. And of the economists who attended then the bigger meeting at which the American Economic Association was actually founded, many of these people had either studied for the clergy, as Clark had done, or had thought about going into the clergy, or had written books with the word church in the title. So the, the alignment was very close. Now, when we look at the contemporary political scene, and you bring the book up to the present, it's kind of hard to understand the divisions and alignments that we have today without introducing religion. I, I was at a talk by a distinguished colleague of mine who is formerly in government, and uh, he was trying to understand how people who are relatively low income could consistently vote for politicians who are advancing policies that seem to go against their interest. And I think it dawned on him after many years of puzzlement that religion might play some role in all of this. It seemed kind of obvious that you, know, you had to think about religion to understand why people vote the way they do. But when we look at, for instance, who voted for Trump, who is not in any way a religious person, there was a lot of support among religious conservatives. Some people have been puzzled by this. It seems to make a lot of sense in your, in your view and the way you think about these alignments. Yeah, I think is right. The key fact to take on board is that the support for uh, Trump that you see is not just from Protestants, it's from evangelical Protestants. By and large, the Protestants, mainline Protestants today, by mainline, 
I mean, denominations like Episcopalians, Presbyterians, Methodists, Congregationalists, and so forth, uh, do not particularly vote in ways that are different from other Americans. It's the uh, evangelicals uh, who do. So that's the phenomenon to be explained. Now, here come the two uh, factors. One, evangelicals in America are overwhelmingly what we called a moment ago pre-millennialist. They have this whole set of beliefs associated with the idea that the world as we know it will end and the second coming will occur before the world gets significantly better, before the millennium comes. And as a result, you see this the popularity in that sphere of all of these premillennial novels like the Left Behind novel. I'm not going to ask you whether you've read a Left Behind novel, but for, for the benefit of your listeners who haven't, I'll explain that the standard motif in the Left Behind novel is that all of a sudden a bunch of people aren't here. And what's happened is that they have been raptured up into heaven uh, rapture from the Greek word for seizing. Uh, and this is uh, the description in Matthew, the gospel according to Matthew, of how the second coming will arise. Uh, the Lord will be up in the clouds, and he will look down, and as Matthew puts it, there will be two women grinding, and all of a sudden one of them is taken seized, raptured, and the other one is left. Or there will be two men plowing, and all of a sudden one of them is taken away and the other one isn't. So this is a very popular line of thought in that world. So the first key thing to take on board is that this uh, group that we're talking about is overwhelmingly pre-millennial. The second is that they have strongly different views on aspects of economics that relate to individual initiative, the, again, the possibilities for human agency. So if you look at poll questions like, are the poor trapped in poverty? Or can the poor on their own initiative get out of their poverty? Uh, nobody is surprised to learn that Americans are pretty evenly divided on this. And mainline Protestants are pretty close in their view to uh, everybody else. But evangelicals are sharply in the direction of saying that the poor are not stuck in their poverty. The poor can get out of poverty by their initiative. And if you get to those denominations that people self-identify as not just evangelical but traditionalist, evangelical, then it comes two to one. Two to one, Instead of being evenly divided as Americans as a whole are, evangelicals would reply two to one, people are not stuck in poverty. Uh, evangelicals would reply two to one, uh, traditionalist evangelicals would reply two to one, uh, we do not need a big social safety net, everybody can take care of themselves. Evangelicals would reply two to one, that we do not need a bigger government, we want a smaller government. I'm deliberately here 
picking questions on which I happen to know, you probably do too, that if you took a poll of all Americans, it would be just exactly 50-50. But the traditionalist evangelicals are away uh, two to one. So I think if you combine this pre-millennialist view of the possibilities for making the world better with the view of the possibilities for human agency, then you start to understand why uh, evangelicals are much more inclined to vote the way they do, even though evangelicals have lower incomes than the rest of us and therefore are more likely to draw on these programs like food stamps and subsidized housing and supplemental income. I don't know where you come from. I happen to come from Kentucky. Kentucky is one of the two states in the country where people have the highest rate of drawing on things like food stamps. But yet, you mentioned voting for Donald Trump. Kentuckians uh, went for Donald Trump by what, maybe 20 percentage points, something like that. So there is a real puzzle, and I don't claim to have a full explanation, but I do think that anybody who tries to attack this puzzle without bringing in religious beliefs and I give some examples in the book of political scientists who try to do that, uh, once again, their explanations are at best, I think, seriously incomplete. Now, right before we started the podcast, we were talking about whether your view of things have changed since the earlier book. I think that in that book, you were fairly confident that there was a belief, a widespread belief, that economic growth was consistent with the improvement of human moral character. And, and I think that there seems to be a bit of a pushback against that since that book was released. Certainly in business schools, I, I don't get a sense from students that they're on board with that idea. And that there seems to be a lot more concern about the negative consequences of growth and not only on the world in general, but also on the people. Do you think that this is part of a, a cyclical pushback against this idea, or do you see that this idea is, is in, under threat in some way? Well, to begin, I continue to believe that the idea is right, and to the extent that business schools are moving in the opposite direction, I think that's too bad. So I believe that economic growth, by which I mean rises, sustained increases, improvements in living standards, broadly distributed among the population— I think that is uh, the condition under which the society is able to move forward in a variety of non-material dimensions that ever since the Enlightenment, we've taken to be morally positive. Things like tolerance, tolerance with respect to what is an American, I would immediately think of racial tolerance, living in today's world, looking at this morning's headlines, I would think about attitudes toward immigrants, but I also have in mind uh, religious and ethnic uh, prejudice. Uh, I think when people throughout the society enjoy sustained improvement in living standards, that's when people become more generous with those who happen to be left behind. I think that's when people become more committed to uh, democratic uh, political institutions. So why are we in the mess we're in today? 
And here's where my optimism of 2005, I think, has been badly disappointed. To begin, the average rate of economic expansion since 2005 has been less than I would have hoped for. And some of that had to do with the great financial crisis of 2007, 8, 9. But it's been other things uh, as well. It's also been the pandemic. Second, and I think even more important, in a way that I did not anticipate when I wrote that book, the growth that we have had has been overwhelmingly concentrated among people who are already at the very top of the income distribution. So that the vast majority of Americans today uh, have a standard of living that's not particularly different from what it was when I wrote that book and it was published in 2005. Well, we're now in 2023. So that's 18 years of stagnation in the living standard of the you know bulk of Americans. Well, that gets up, 18 years gets up there to rank with the major episodes of stagnation that I wrote about in that book. So I think the fact that uh, there's a lot of ungenerosity in our society, the fact that we have renewed racial tensions, the fact that there's a lot of antipathy toward immigrants, the fact that uh, large numbers of uh, people in our country are not particularly committed to the uh, fundamentals of American democracy that we've had for uh, a very long time. I, To me, all these are not just pathologies. They are the predictable pathologies. They are the symptoms that emerge whenever we go through a lengthy period, like 18 years, in which the broad bulk of the society doesn't have any improvement in its living standard. Well, Ben, thank you so much for joining me. The latest book is called Religion and the Rise of Capitalism. But don't forget, Moral Consequences of Economic Growth. Hope to talk to you again soon. Great. I enjoyed the conversation very much. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www dot unsiloedpodcast dot com. <laughs>